So this morning we actually start a new series called Imitate, Mending the Breach Between Heaven and Earth. And so for the rest of this month we'll be looking at this because this is a massive concept as we think about the breach between man and God. Like how are we going to mend that? And so we'll look at mending the, the gap between God and man just relationally. We'll look at how we mend the gap between each other. Like there's a, a powerful evangelistic thrust in when our unity, in our unity. We'll also look at what about mending the gap in this world where we see injustice? God cares about justice in our society, how we treat one another. How do we bring justice to a world where God, that's what God originally intended? And then finally, we'll talk about mending the gap in our work. God created work in the beginning. It is a good thing. It's one of the ways we express our worship. So how do we restore that dignity? How do we mend the gap there? So this morning, we'll be focusing on mending the gap between God and man. And our text will probably be coming maybe from an, uh, maybe un, you're not necessarily thinking it would come from this text, but we're going to be looking at Genesis 24. So I'm actually really excited to be able to jump in this text with you. I had a buddy of mine, he did a devotion, devotional off this text about a year ago with a group of us, and I was like, wow, I've never seen that. I was just, I loved it. It was awesome. So I'm excited to be able to jump in this text with you guys this morning. Before we go there, uh, let me have a little prayer. Lord, I echo just what we prayed through singing, that you would be glorified this morning. I pray that you please come and go before me to guide the words, guide my speech. I want you to be glorified. I want our eyes to be more fully focused on you, that we'd walk away with something delicious and tangible and be able to see you more clearly, that it just gives us a little bit of food for another day until we wait to either come home to you or you come back and get us. That's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we're talking about mending the breach between God and man relationally, it's a valid question to say, why are we starting in Genesis 24? Kind of an odd place to start. If we're going to talk about that, why not just go all the way to the New Testament, pretty overt there. Why are we starting here in Genesis 24? Well, if we're going to get there, we need to actually find out where are we at in the book of Genesis to this point. That actually kind of help us get a clear understanding. So as we know, we have been created to be imitators of God. That's Genesis 1. Our parents were called to imitate, and really they had one chief objective, imitate the fact that our God cultivates, he produces things. But Genesis 3 takes place, and now not only do we imitate our God through cultivating, but we also imitate our God through mending, a breach. And in Genesis 3, there's a key promise that is given. That one day, through this woman, there's going to be a child who's going to come, and he will actually mend the breach between heaven and earth. So now what we have from Genesis 4 until Genesis 11 is we're looking at all these different generations, all these different bloodlines, and there's two things that are going on. One is to show God's not a liar. He told our first parents, he said, if you eat of this tree, you're going to die. And that's twofold. In one way... Everything that we knew, the way of life that existed pre-fall, that is now dead. But also, too, no matter how long you live, and there's some of those people, they lived a long time, you're going to die. Over and over and over again, you read these genealogies, so-and-so lived all this amount of time, had some kids, and died, and died, and died. God's not a liar. But also, by looking at all of these different generations, the point is we're trying to look and see, where's that promised child? Where's he going to come from? 
And then you get to Genesis 12, and for the remaining 39 chapters, it's focusing on one bloodline, one family, and it's saying the promise is going to come through this line. And that's where we encounter Abraham in Genesis 12. And he's given a promise. I will multiply your offspring, give you a land, and through that people in that land, I will bless all the nations. So now when we come to Genesis 24, we actually feel this, this promise to mend it's in jeopardy. We need to feel a tension. Because as we come here, we encounter an Abraham. These are the last words that he speaks. The next chapter he dies. So he's on death's doorstep. And he's got a son who's a 40-year-old virgin, has no wife, and the promise ain't going to go anywhere unless he has a wife. So he's feeling this tension of, it's the promise that you're going to multiply me, give me a land, bless the nations. Is that going to fall flat? And the, prom- the problem is, if that falls flat then the embedded promise of a Savior to mend the breach, that falls flat too. That's what brings us to Genesis 24, is to see the fact that God has been mending from the beginning. So, as we come into this chapter, we're going to be finding, really, this is mission impossible. We're going to be focusing in on a a servant whose name is Eleazar. You can find that back in Genesis 15. But he's going, to have to, he's going to have to go on this journey. And there are so many obstacles in this journey that's like, this is mission impossible. The deck is stacked against him. And when the deck is stacked against you, it's very helpful if you have somebody on the inside who's actually passing you the right cards. And that's what we see here. The deck is completely stacked against Abraham, the promise against Eleazar. But God is in the middle. He's in the back just kind of passing off the right cards. So that's what we're looking at right here. Fun fact, Genesis 24 is the longest chapter of all the chapters in Genesis, so I'm not going to read the entire thing. I'm just going to read a few passages here and there, and we'll walk through and extract a few points. All right? Genesis 24. It says, Abraham was now old, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household, I managed all that he owned. Place your hand under my thigh, and I will have you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my land and my family to take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is unwilling to follow me to this land. Should I have your son go back to the land from which you came? Abraham answered him, Make sure that you don't take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give this land to your offspring. He will send his angel before you. You can take a wife from my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you are free from this oath to me, but don't let my son go back there. So the servant placed his hand under his master Abraham's thigh, swore an oath to him concerning this matter. So what we encounter right here is a very seasoned Abraham. He was an old man when he came to know God. He was 75 years old. But now we're kind of like, fact check me on this, but kind of roughly about 130 years old right here for Abraham. He's been following God for a long time. And he's had his ups and downs. If you've ever heard the erroneous, false comment that God helps those who help themselves, Abraham was a proponent of this early in his life. The promises made to him, you're going to have a child and then I'll bless, I'll, I'm going to multiply him takes a little bit of time for that child to come along so they have the fiasco with Hagar. But God remains faithful. There's some tension there in the family. 
Causes some rifts, some fights, but God stays faithful. Well, Abraham's not quite freed of his God helps those who help themselves as we go on to further chapters. And we see as they're traveling around in Canaan, enemy territory, Abraham's got a fear. He says, we're encountering different tribes and different kingdoms, and I got a really good-looking wife. And my fear is they're going to kill me and take you so they can marry you. So do me a favor, anywhere we go, just tell them that I'm your brother. Well, on one specific occasion, that's what happens. The king's like, oh, that's just your sister? I'll take her. She is good-looking. I appreciate that. But then God has his back. He says, Abraham, even though you still think you've got to do this all on your own, I'll take care of this. Visits the king, gangster style in the dream, says, you touch her, you're a dead man. And so now as we get to Genesis 24, we have an Abraham who, this is the biggest event in his life. I mean, for more, almost two, for almost half a century now, he's been waiting on this one promise to take place. And he's about to die, and it hasn't taken place yet. There is no daughter for his son, and yet we find a man who's now willing to say, I trust him. I don't need to do this on my own anymore. Like he's going to be there. And this is good news for us. That God seasons us. We are getting to a place where we're going to say, I trust him. And we are a diverse church, but one place we're not diverse in is age. It'd be good to kind of pray for some people who've walked with Jesus a long time and know how to tell some of us a little bit younger, say, I know that's a big deal to you right now, but trust God, I promise. It's going to be okay. Don't let that stress you out. Keep your eyes on him. He is faithful. He's going to hold on to you. And when you encounter people like that who have such a certainty, such a confidence in God's sovereignty, it's contagious. And that's what we see for the servant Eleazar right here. So let me read a few more verses here. The servant took ten of his master's camels with all kinds of his master's goods in hand. He went to Aram Naharim, also known as Mesopotamia, to Nahor's town. At evening... The time when women went out to draw water, he made the camels kneel beside a well outside the town. Lord, God of my master Abraham, he prayed, make this happen for me today and show kindness to my master Abraham. I'm standing here at the spring where the daughters of the men of the town are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jugs that I may drink, and who responds, drink, and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one you have appointed to your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Eleazar needs the sovereignty of God to fortify him. When it says he actually takes a trip to Aram Naharim, this is not a small deal. This is over 450 miles. No road signs. You're not going a whole lot of, you're not traveling very fast. It'd be kind of like the equivalent, hop in a golf cart right here in Atlanta and drive towards Minneapolis. You'll get there eventually. You know, just go north and somewhat west. So if you just th- put yourself in his shoes. He's a man. He's on this journey. And he's thinking, am I even going to find this family? Does this family even still exist there? Have they moved? Maybe like marauding bandits have come through and killed them. Maybe they don't even have any daughters. Maybe they only had sons. Maybe they have daughters, but they're all married off. Maybe they have daughters, but... The men have to say, yeah, we, we approve of this. Maybe they say, we don't want that. So he's got all these doubts. It better be the sovereignty of God that's going to fortify him all the way because he's got plenty of reasons. He's probably starting to see, man, there's a lot of roadblocks on this journey. 
this is going to be a miracle. You know, mainly it's probably like, all right, I'm going to have to go back to old Father Abraham and be like, I'm sorry, I did the best I could. But what's the call to him? Go. God's sovereign. Can you relate to that? Sometimes maybe you feel like you're called to go. You're like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where to go. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I'm just called to go. We can relate with this. The sovereignty of God is a comfort in this time. Right? Well, there's something when you're going, when you don't necessarily know where you're going, how you're going to get there, how this is going to work out, it's good to pray some prayers that only a sovereign God could actually answer. So look at this. First part of his prayer, not a big deal. If this is the right woman, I'm going to ask her for some water. Just let her give it to me. No big deal. A little southern hospitality right there. The second one is that she'll just voluntarily say, can I get some water for your thirsty camels? Fun fact. In about 15 minutes, camels can drink 30 gallons of water. How many camels does Eleazar have? Ten. That is 300 milk jugs of water for this guy's camels. That's a big ask. That's like really kind of testing, like, if this is from God, like, this is a big one. Further, so I was just kind of curious. I was like, I wonder how, much, how many gallons like a big milk jug carries. So, because there's still parts of the world right now where men and women have to travel out to a spring, get water, and take it back. And so for a milk jug that's about 40 pounds on your head, it contains five gallons of water. So it's like you're taking six trips per camel, 60 trips total between spring and camel trough. It's kind of a big ask, right? So when I read this passage, I'm like, oh, this is how I got married. So I remember back in like 2010, I've traveled home from a long place. I'm in Hong Kong, so I've actually taken a long journey. I'm back home. And I'm happening to go through, I'm, I'm going to help out with this youth camp in North Carolina. At this time, I've been praying to be single. And so we're traveling, and one of the counselors that I work with, I was working with, she's really close friends with Cara, my now wife. And so we're passing through a little town outside of Charlotte, and the friend says, hey, Cara, why don't you come out here and get some lunch with me? So she comes. Well, Cara and I are from the same hometown, but we don't know each other, never spoken with one another. There's one time I'm coming out of the bathroom, and I see her, I was like, I'm not saying anything. And so she goes, hey, don't I know you? So I was like, boom, see, she hit on me first. So the wheels are in motion. <laughs> well, anyway, we get to talking a little bit. I was like, she's cute. But I was like, she's in North Carolina, I'm in Georgia. I was like, that ain't happening. Back to plan A. I'm staying single. I'm good with this. Well, it turns out I don't go back to Hong Kong. I stay in Georgia. And I get this job at a crummy little bookstore. And then six months later, she happens to come through at a, on a shift that I'm working at, and I see her, and I'm like, that's the one I'm going to marry her. Again, when I'm still praying, I want to be single. So maybe a little tangential point here. Some of you are like, why am I here in Atlanta? Why am I working at this job? Why am I living in this neighborhood? It could be in God's sovereignty. You're about to meet a mentor that's going to help you walk more closely with Jesus. You may find friends that you desperately need. He sees you. You may find a spouse. Right? So anyway, so we begin to talk a little bit. Another month, we're talking still. She's far away. We're in two different places just talking. And so she throws out this comment one time. She says, man, you're like a, a big brother to me, like a friend. And I was like, whoa, whoa. I told her, I said, I don't need any more friends. I got friends. And so this is where the Eleazar prayer comes in. Because I was like, I'm about to you know, knock you between the eyes with the M word. Because it's like, if you're not of God, like, 
I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste your time. So I said, look here. I said, I'm going to pursue you for marriage or nothing. I was like, that'll get rid of her. You know, well, she stuck around. I got a ring. She's got a ring. Bada boom. But you sometimes you pray like these prayers. Like it's only, there's no chance this takes place unless God does something. That's helpful. As we walk on this, the sovereignty of God is a comfort to us that helps us, that reminds us that this impossible journey is not in vain. It's not futile. He's in charge. Well, lo and behold, the little girl comes through and she's willing to get all these 300 gallons of water just willingly, offers it off the top of her head. Well, that's several barriers are down. He's found the right town. He comes across perhaps the one woman on the entire planet that's willing to draw 300 gallons of water for his camels. Still has to come from the right family. Turns out that's the case. Great. Well, now he's got to go and convince the men of the household. What do you think about, can I take this, your daughter home for my servant, or for the man that I serve? Sometimes when God's on the move, everybody can tell. You go to verse 50, that's exactly what happens. Eliezer comes, he starts telling his story, and they're like, we can't say anything good or bad about this. This is clearly from God. It's like, boom, just another wall falls down under the sovereignty of God. Well, there's one more barrier here. What's Rebecca going to say? This is a massive, massive step of faith. Rebecca, do you want to go with this man? Do you want to travel your own 450 miles to a land that you've never seen before? You'll probably never, ever see us again. So the way of life that you know is dead. You're going to someplace new. And for all you know, the guy you're going to could be a complete ogre in looks and in temperament. This is a massive step of faith. And yet she says, yeah, I'll do it. And by the way, we'll leave tomorrow. No big deal. What? God's sovereignty. It is a comfort to us. So what we see right here is just on, the, on this first point is that God, if he calls us to this mission impossible, he has delivered on this promise to Abraham. We're going to keep on going. This promise that I'm going to give you many people, a land, bless the nations, it's going. But our story doesn't end there. Like any good, you know, students of the Bible, we got to get our glasses, kind of like, where's Waldo? Like, where's Jesus in this? Because we're told from the New Testament, Jesus says, if you read anything in the Moses, anything in the prophets, it's really just talking about me. So let's peel back a layer and see, does this have any kind of tones about Jesus? Well, on the surface, this is about Abraham, it's about Eleazar, it's about Rebecca, and it's about Isaac. But if we peel that back, take the names down, this story is about a father who loves his son and is in search of a bride for him. It's about a devoted servant who's willing to go to a very distant land through an arduous journey to find that bride. It's about a bride who's willing to take a massive step of faith to receive the marriage proposal. And it's about a son who's waiting to receive his loving wife, his loving bride back home. Sound familiar? You got the gospel back here in Genesis 24. So what this tells us is this is a true story, but this is just a shadow of the real thing. There's something, there's a deeper substance going on here. The promise, it's like the, we need a little medicine for the brokenness in our world, and this promise to Abraham is like the capsule, but the actual medicine, the ground up powder is Genesis 3, and it's embedded in there. It's not going to be delivered till later. So David Bowden in his uh, spoken gospel, he makes this beautiful connection 
between Genesis 24 and John 4. Because in John 4, we find another servant at another well encountering another woman making another proposal of marriage. Maybe you've seen this. Jesus goes, he's, make, he's already taken this very long journey from heaven to earth. Now he's actually gone into a place he's not, he's not welcome in, going to Samaria. And we see the sovereignty of God early on in that chapter where it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? He had to make a marriage proposal. So he goes, encounters this woman, and he basically says, the, at least the first part anyway, makes the same request that Eleazar did. Can I get some water? But he meets a very different woman. Genesis 24, we're told, Rebecca is beautiful in appearance. Beautiful character. In a sense, what we find with Rebecca is we found a woman that's just been loved. She's been taken care of. John 4, we find a woman that's broken, that's been abused, that's been hurt. And this comes across in her response. Essentially, she says, what are you talking to me for? Why are you asking me for water? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We're not supposed to talk, right? Like, what are we doing here? So even though Jesus' physical journey, the geographical journey has ended, now he's about to have a journey, a conversational journey through some rocky territory until he can make this proposal, say, will you be a part of my bride? So they start talking, and he says, all right, why don't you get your husband? Oh, I don't have a husband. Yeah, that's right. You've had five, and the one you're with now, that's not your husband. So, oh, man, I guess you're a prophet. Hey, tell me about this worship on the mountain. Like, what does that, what's that have to do with like, being married and all this? What's going on here? You ever had anybody ask you a really uncomfortable question, and you were like, oh, change the subject. Just start talking about something else. So what's going on here. But Jesus is like, I'm not going to be deterred. I'm just going to keep on chasing you until I see you and you receive the fact that it's like, I love you, I'm for you. So what's going on here? Genesis 24, John 4, what's going on here? If you've ever made the statement, yes, I believe in Jesus for me, but I actually don't believe the fact that he's the only way, because like, what about somebody on the other side of the world that's never even heard about Jesus? What we see from both of these passages, and specifically in Genesis 24, is that there is no amount of geographical distance between God and those who are meant to be a part of his bride that he's not willing to bridge. He will find you. There have been plenty of Rebecca's and Samaritan women's all throughout history, even right now, where they have no access to God, and yet he bridges the gap and he finds them. What we find in these stories is that it's the love of God that compels him to make long journeys through territories where he's not welcomed. And even to go through conversations that are difficult and uncomfortable to offer up the, the proposal of marriage. That's one way. The love of God compels us to go a long way. Secondly, what's going on here is the fact that there's no amount of distance between God's perfection and our moral failure that he's not willing to bridge and say, I will clean you up. Do you want to be part of my bride? Beautiful. So where are we at in this story or these stories? In one sense, we are Rebecca and we're the Samaritan woman. We have been, we've had a king who has traveled a great distance to find us. And we've had loads of moral failings. He says, I'll bridge the gap. I want to be with you. Will you actually receive the invitation to be a part of my bride? And if you've said yes, you continue to be the bride, but also now you take on a different identity, that of servant. And this is part of imitating. I want to read this. Just a little passage from 
Charles Octavius Booth from his Plain Theology for Plain People. And this is just describing, because we're about to get into our application phase, like we're called to imitate. What are we actually imitating? He says, but one who is seeking faithfully to be a follower or an imitator of Christ will not be satisfied with using opportunities that are thrown from time to time his way. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. This means much more than trying to save those that we may chance to meet, as we say. It's one thing to meet someone and then use the opportunity to speak to him of Jesus and his salvation. It's a different thing to think first of someone and then seek for an opportunity to present him the great salvation and urge him to accept it. Saying this is part of, be called, like, part of being imitators. We're called to imitate this great God who says, I will go any distance. Just like we saw the Martins. Some of you are called to go a great distance to the other side of the world to bring this loving news. Some of you are being called to go into no-fly zones. Some of you are just going to have to travel great distances conversationally, relationally, in some uncomfortable territory to offer up this idea of, well, you want, do you want to be a part of the bride? Jesus loves you. We're called to imitate that. But as we conclude, I want us to walk away with three, three takeaways from this. If we're going to imitate, we need these three things. First is this. If we're going to imitate God, we actually have to know the love of God. See, Genesis 24, the overt message is God's sovereign. He's in control. But the lubricant that's making the story flow so smoothly is the love of God. Four times in chapter 24, the strongest word in the Old Testament for God's love, hesed, appears. It just bathes the story. I mean, it's talking about the love of the father for the son. It's talking about the love of the servant for the master to obey him. It's talking about the love of the bride to respond to the marriage proposal. It's talking about the love of the son to receive the bride home. There's no way we can imitate God if we don't actually know the love of God. Tangible, how are you going to get to know that? I know my mentor early on, he told me, he said, for the next six to nine months, you need to read a gospel a week. Just bathe yourself in Jesus. Because the scriptures tell us that he is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Philip says, hey, Jesus, let's see the Father, and that's enough. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So look at Jesus. Study the gospels. And there's a great little resource out right now to come alongside the Bible reading. It's a little book called Gentle and Lowly. And it focuses on this quality in Matthew eleven twenty nine, where Jesus describes, this is what I'm like. He said, I am gentle and I am lowly. He says, a bruised reed, I won't break. You're struggling. He's like, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm just struggling right now. He's not going to come alongside and beat you. I'm struggling to believe this. You're a flickering flame. He's like, I'm not going to snuff you out. Like, if you don't know the loving forgiveness of this God, what are you going to tell people? If you don't know the loving intimacy of this God, what are you going to tell people about? Love bathes this whole endeavor, this whole mission. We got, if we're going to imitate God, we've got to know the love of God. Secondly, if we're going to imitate God in this mending the breach, then we actually need to know how the good news of Jesus actually applies to different life situations. So you think about Jesus, like, it's not just a message. He's, he's everything. He's a living organism. It's got feet of itself. It's, it has a way of getting down the nooks and crannies. Like, he's everything, so he applies to everything. It's not enough just to know a rote gospel presentation. That's good. 
You need to start there. Get that, you know, get the three circles, get the bridge presentation, know that, have that in your back pocket. But it's sort of like when you're learning how to dance. I'm just trying to get my footwork down, don't take too big a step, don't step on anybody. But if I'm ever going to enjoy dancing the way it was meant to be, eventually I've got to loosen up the hips and the shoulders. There's got to be a little bit more movement to it. And that's the idea with this good news. It's not always just this kind of like rote presentation. It's like, what is the good news of Jesus right now to you where you're at? And this has always been important, but I mean, we live in a society. It's like, people don't know this Christian terminology. A lot of people in the church don't know this Christian te- terminology, right? Here's a question. Let's say you actually grow up in a family where you just never felt valued. Didn't matter what you did. People, they just, you're overlooked. You could be sitting in the middle of the living room, all your family is around, you're like, I just feel like I'm invisible. I feel like I could just disappear. They wouldn't notice. And you start to wonder, man, if I left this city, would they notice? If I left this state, would they notice? If I left the country, would they even notice? And God forbid, if I left this world, would they even notice? What is the good news of Jesus, who he is to you? Here's what Jesus says. He says, you are like a wad of cash to me that I've lost in my house. And I'm moving everything. I got to move furniture around. I'm pulling back rugs. I'm sweeping it around, turning on the lights. I'm looking in my pants pockets, my coat pockets, pulling out drawers. I'm just trying to find you. You're so valuable. I got to find you. He says in another way, he says, you're like a cherished pet that's gone missing. I'm taking pictures of you with my phone number underneath it, putting your picture up on all these telephone posts. I'm putting it on Twitter feeds, Facebook feeds. Have you seen my pet? Please call me. I'll put out a reward. I want my pet back. And he's saying you, more valuable than a wad of cash, more valuable than a cherished pet. You know what's going to happen when I find you? I'm inviting all my friends to come to the house. I'm saying, guess who I found? I value you. Let's try another one. What about if you're in a life situation like, I just can't find fulfillment. You got all the trophies from high school. You got the right degree from the right college. You're having some career success. You got the nice corner office with the windows. You got some material to show off to say, like, I'm doing well. I got some money in the bank and in my investment account. You've had the romantic relationships. You're like, it's like John Mayer. It's like something's missing. What's the good news to you where you're at right there? Jesus says, it's like, you keep turning up the water bottle, but nothing's coming out. And he says, I'm like a river of fresh water inside you. That when you drink me, it's like, man, you're fresh, you're fulfilled. He says, I'm like bread. Then when you eat it, it's like, man, that's good. And I'm full. He says, I'm like a really, really valuable treasure that you just happen to stumble across in the field or on a patch of beach. And you realize what you got. And you're like, man, I got I to gotta clear out my emergency fund. I got to sell all my assets off. Because if I get this, I'm richer than I've ever been. I'm more fulfilled than I've ever been. That's the good news to you where you're at. Like, we know that if we can't actually start to apply this one to our own life, do you see the goodness that he goes everywhere? It's not just in this one little section, but then the rest of it is like, well, I don't know what, I don't know what Jesus is going to do for you there. It's everywhere. We're going to imitate Jesus. We've got to know how his goodness applies to different life situations. Finally, as I conclude, if we're going to imitate Jesus, we have to let the sovereignty of God develop a sense of expectancy in us. At the top of Genesis 24, 
Abraham's telling Eleazar, like, you're about to go on this <laughs> crazy, absurd journey, but God's going to take care of you. But then he throws out this little caveat. He says, but if, if you don't find the woman, you're off the hook. But it's like, that was more for Eleazar, just to kind of ease his tension, because he's just like, I know that's what you're thinking. But at this point, Abraham's like, God's going to deliver. He was expectant. I know this is something, man, I need my life. I think we all need in our life. Like, when I pray, do I expect something to happen? Early on in his music career, 50 Cent said, his grandmother told me, he said, baby boy, you can worry or you can pray, but you can't do both. Well, if I actually pray and I'm in accordance to his will, the fact is God is still trying to mend the breach. He wants that to take place. So when I pray, do I actually think today he might actually order my footsteps? He might actually order my conversations. When I have my change of plans, my tendency is to get frustrated, but I actually think, maybe this is a sovereign move because I might be encountering someone that's meant to be a part of his bride. The mission of God's still going. Genesis 3 is ongoing until we meet him, until he comes back to mend the breach between God and man. And this is what we're called to do, is that we're going to span the gap wherever it is. The love of God will compel us to go anywhere into any conversation, into any kind of relationship. We have to be compelled by that love. But as we go, just let it be the fact that God's sovereignty is a comfort to you. Because at times it's going to feel futile. At times it's going to feel like all I do is lose. But it's not the case. Just like he did for Abraham. And just like he's guaranteed to do right now, he's going to fulfill that mission. He's going to get the members of his bride. Let's pray. Jesus, I, just, I ask Father, Son, Holy Spirit for this we be engulfed with your love, that we would be so full of your passion that it just compelled you to endure hardship. It compelled you to go to the cross. It compelled you to leave the comforts and the honor of heaven to come down and be among us. Would you please make us those kind of people that we could see many people come to saving faith, many lost members of, his, of your bride come into union with you. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.